Well, friends, I invite you to get your Bibles uh, or your Bible app, and uh, be in, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and 12 today. If you had lunch plans, cancel them. Just kidding, just kidding. But we are going to attempt today to tell very quickly a, a major story in the life of Moses. We chose this series months ago. We wanted to focus on the life of the central figure in the Old Testament. And when we chose this, we did not know that Bentonville Community Church would be facing a pastoral transition. So many of you know, last week I announced my resignation and my calling to a new church uh, in Lenexa, Kansas. And so one of the things I feel very called to in this time that we have is to, to prepare you for transition and, and for to, to bring you on a journey, because the journey that Lauren and I have been on to get to this point is one that certainly involves you, because God wouldn't do this in our heart if He wasn't preparing you for something special and someone special to fill this role that we leave behind. And so it is no accident that we are looking at the life of Moses. He is the most significant leader in the Old Testament. He's mentioned more times than any other Old Testament figure in the New and there's so many lessons, so many things that God does in the story of the Exodus that is applicable for us uh, as we think about uh, a pastoral transition. One of the things that I have recognized in the 20 years that I've been a pastor is that pastors are stewards. I don't know that we use that word a lot in, in, in common usage. It is a word that we use a lot in the church. But it's this idea of stewardship. It's this idea that what, what pastors, the, the task that they have to, to lead is, is, a, is something that they don't own for themselves, but God owns. God owns the church. God is sovereign over the church, and they are a steward of it. They're to manage it, take care of it, and lead it, and leave it better than they found it. And so, so pastors are called to be steward leaders and as I think about transition and even my own vocation and who God is preparing for you, I am confronted with um, the ambiguity that surrounds um, the role and office of pastor when you're trying to explain it to other people outside the church that may not understand how churches work and, and how they function. As the steward leader of this church, I'm called on at times to, to sign certain things or make certain decisions and and I found myself in all kinds of different roles and in all kinds of different uh, situations. Uh, sometimes as a, as a pastor, I feel like a CEO. I feel like there's executive decisions that are made um, that I don't actually execute, but I make those decisions. Sometimes I feel like the middle manager that's like taking what was been decided and like putting it uh, into, into action. And then honestly, sometimes I, I just, I'm, I'm kind of just the janitor. <laughs> just cleaning some stuff up and, and doing some things that have to be done um, when you're pastor, you, you just run the gamut of all kinds of different roles. But what's funny is, you know, living in the world and having really worldly stuff like a commercial mortgage loan and bank accounts and titles to properties and all of those things that we have. I work with banks sometimes and I work with other community leaders. And, and so sometimes it's my role to to speak for the church or to sign something for the church or to pledge the church's resources or to decide for the church certain things. And banks and government organizations, they're not really sure 
what my role is and how I do that. And of course, our polity is different from all the other churches' polity. And so it gets kind of amb- ambiguous sometimes. And so sometimes I'm in those situations and they're not really sure what to make of me or, or what I actually, whatever, what kind of authority or power I actually have. And here's what I've learned. All that to say this. Here's what I learned about being the pastor of a local church. Um, being the pastor of a local church is like riding a bull. You may be on top, but you're not in charge. I think, I think, that's, I think that's what first service laughed more at that. Um, but you may be on top, but, but you're not in charge. Like, like it, it's, it's just a weird place to be sometimes. Um, in fact, Hallmark has created this holiday. It's called National Bosses Day. I don't even know when it is. I just know at some point I show up and there's like chocolate on my desk and it's awesome. But it's created this holiday, National Bosses Day, and I just hate the word boss. Like that's the role that I, I fill sometimes in, in this organization. But I, I hate that term. A little bit of me cringes when I hear it. I'll gladly accept the chocolate and the gifts. But I cringe a little bit because when I hear the word boss, like I have this image. This is the first image that comes to mind. Oh, I'm the boss? I'm the lizard-like creature that sits up in my office eating live animals, making decisions for this organization? Um, that's the term I, 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 that's the image that I have when I hear uh, boss. If you're not a Star Wars fan, where have you been? Um, you, can, you, can, you can do a quick Google search of Jabba the Hutt and you can find out who this is. But yeah, 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 this is kind of the first image that comes to mind. But the reality is, this, there's another image that comes to my mind, and this is probably closer to the truth than Jabba the Hutt, but it's not, it's not much better. This is probably actually closer to who I am around here and, and what I do. And this is not a good image. I think maybe I'd rather be Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm the boss. Sometimes I find myself as the one who is in charge. And that's the tension of the book of Exodus. Who is in charge? The Lord comes to Moses and the Lord reveals to Moses that I have a plan, I have a purpose, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you are going to say to Pharaoh, my people are going to go, they're going to become the people that I've intended for them to be, they're going to be a light and a blessing to the nations, all nations will be blessed through them and their unique role in the world, but they cannot fulfill that as long as they are slaves in Egypt. And so go to Pharaoh, proclaim to Pharaoh that God is going to break in, he's going to do something. And we're going to fast forward through a lot of the story, but Moses eventually gets to Pharaoh and declares this. And that tension is, is, is clearly in play there because God has revealed himself, he's revealed his holy name, he said, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. All of life has its source and its being and its origin in me. This is what the holy name of God means, the Lord. So so clearly God is declaring his sovereignty in this story. But Moses stands before Pharaoh, delivers this message. (laughs) Pharaoh is not impressed with the holy name of God at all. And so the question becomes clear, who's in charge? Because everybody in Egypt knows that Pharaoh's in charge. Pharaoh considers the economic impact of losing slave labor and says, I don't know who this Lord is, but there is no way 
that were letting these slaves go. Look at Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Wow. Exodus 3, the Lord reveals his name for the first time. He clearly reveals who he is. And with total nonchalance and just flippantly, here's Pharaoh in his palace saying, I don't know this Lord. I don't know who this is. He has no power here. He's confronted with the truth of God's sovereignty, and Pharaoh completely dismisses it. He acts the way you would expect someone to act who has been told all their life, all their life, that they are a God. They've been told all their life that they're in charge. They've been told all their life that Egypt revolves around them. They are not a steward leader. They are a tyrant. And they have own, the only agenda they have is, of, is for themselves. And one thing the Exodus story will not allow us to do, to this question of who is in charge, the Exodus story will not let us just kind of throw our hands up and say, ah, I don't really know. I don't really know who's in charge. I'm going to just ride the fence here. I want to see how this plays out. I'm going to ride the fence here and, 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 just, and just let things kind of play out. It won't let us do that. There's clearly a choice to make. Is Pharaoh in charge with his agenda and what he wants, or is the great I am, the one who will be who he will be, the one in whom all life comes from, is he the one in charge? And, and will you surrender to that? You know, sometimes personally, when you're confronted with the truth of God's sovereignty and who God is in your life, sometimes the temptation for us is to ride that fence, to say, well, I don't really know. I sort of want to live in two worlds if I could. But what the gospel is inviting you to do is to clearly say, to clearly declare your allegiance, to clearly proclaim who you believe is sovereign over your life and over the world. And so, I don't know is, is not an answer. And can I say something about pastoral transitions? You, you've, you've elected an amazing team of women and men who lead this church. And they're working with a district superintendent, and there's a plan, and there is a, a structure for transition. And no one around that table, no one in that decision process is saying, I don't really know who's in charge. They, they, they start that process with this declaration that the Lord is in charge, that the Lord is sovereign over the church, that the Lord has directed this series of events, and He will finish what He has started. And so we, we come into this season of transition. We come into this season of change. And I actually want us to know that this is an opportunity for the church to affirm its commitment to God's sovereignty. It's actually a very special moment in the life of the church. It's a, it's a moment for spiritual growth. It's a moment in which leaders come together and, and a, together with the church, they discern the will of God and they commit to God's sovereignty, to say, no, God is in charge. God is in control. And God uses transitions to advance His purposes. He uses these transitions to advance His purposes. Why? Because He's sovereign. He's the Lord of the church. So I don't know is not an answer. Well, Pharaoh's answer isn't very good either. 
Because when confronted with the question of who's in charge, what does Pharaoh say? Pharaoh says, oh, well, that's easy. I am. I'm in charge. It doesn't go real well for Pharaoh. In this story, and you're, you'll see this in, 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 all, in the interaction Moses has with Pharaoh, and as a series of plagues begin to play out, Pharaoh is the ultimate narcissist in this story. He's the one who is ultimately convinced of his own sovereignty. He, he, he portrays this, this role that the Bible, they actually describe, the Bible actually describes it very well in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs contrasts the wise person with the fool. The fool is the one who has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool is the one who has said, I am sovereign. I am in control. What I want to do is more important than, than what God wants me to do. And, and so here is Pharaoh playing the role of the fool. He's only concerned about himself. He is intent upon resisting the will of God in his life. All he wants to do is build his monuments, to build his buildings, to put his name at the top of these monuments. And, and we see people in roles of leadership that, that live like this, that, that act as if there is, act as if, if they, they are going to live forever. To act as if their reign or their rule or their term of leadership will not come to an end. Friends, we need to be reminded of our own mortality. We need to be reminded of our own limited time here on planet Earth. Whatever, whatever influence that you have, like understand that you're a steward of that. That, that. that one day, whatever season of leadership you're in, it will come to an end. And it will have to be handed off to someone else. And Pharaoh has no concept of that. He's convinced of his own immortality. And he's convinced that he can do it without the help uh, of God. And the church invites us into a different way of living. It invites us to think about our lives differently than to assert our own sovereignty, which is a delusion. It invites us to trust in the sovereignty of God. And so the Lord knows that this is how Pharaoh is going to go. The Lord knows that Pharaoh is going to continue to resist his claims of sovereignty over the Israelites and over Egypt. And so look what happens in Exodus chapter 7, verse 4. Even then, the Lord says, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, Moses, so I will bring down my fist on Egypt. Now this is a pretty incredible thing the Bible does. It gives, it's a, it's a use of anthropomorphic language. It's applying human-like qualities or characteristics to God. It's this image of God and his sovereignty bringing his fist down upon the resistance of Pharaoh. I will bring down my fist on Egypt. Then I will rescue my forces, my people, my kingdom of priests, my holy nation, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. Then I will, here's another anthropomorphic image, then I will raise my powerful hand. I will raise up and bring out the Israelites. The Egyptians will know that I am the great I am. Isn't that imagery powerful? God is bringing down his fist, asserting his sovereignty over Pharaoh, and then with that same hand, opening it and lifting up the kingdom of priests, the Israelites, so that they can fulfill the purpose that he has destined for them. 
So what follows is what it looks like when a sovereign God brings his fist down upon those that resist his divine will. It's a series of plagues. And so there's ten total plagues, but the first nine form this one kind of amazing literary unit. Each, there's, they're broken up into three groups, three triads. And, and this series of plagues, it affirms God's sovereignty over the power of the Egyptian pantheon of gods. So like the Egyptians had a god for everything. And the first plague is this plague where the Nile River turns to blood. The Egyptian god is called Hapi. He's the god of the Nile. And so what is God doing? I am sovereign over the rivers. I am sovereign over the waterways. This river that brings life to Egypt, I am sovereign over that. Who's in charge of fertility? The Egyptians would say it's their god Hecate. But then God sends frogs to swarm the land. God is saying, I'm in charge of life. Who's in charge of the earth? The the Egyptians will say it's Geb. He's God of the earth. But the Lord is bringing his fist down and saying, no, I am the Lord of the earth. And these gnats, they come up from the earth and they infest the people and they torment the people and the crops and and the livestock. And on and on and on it goes. Who's in charge of the seasons and the cycles of life? Who's in charge of the economy? We see the death of the cattle that happens. Who's in charge of human health and flourishing? We see boils break out on the Egyptians. Who's in charge of the weather? The weather is supposed to bring rain to to water the crops so that things grow and that we have food to eat. Who's in charge of that? The Lord sends hail and it destroys the crops. Who's in charge of keeping the ecosystem ordered? Locusts swarm the land. Who's in charge of the final, here's the final in the series of nine. Who's in charge of the sun? The most important god in the Egyptian pantheon is Re, the sun god. And what does God do? God causes the sun to not shine. He sends darkness on the land of Egypt. One plague after another is God confronting the gods of the Egyptians and saying, no, Pharaoh, I'm in charge of the Nile. I'm in charge of your health. I'm in charge of your crops. I'm in charge of your cattle. I'm in charge of your cycles of life. I'm in charge of the sun that brings life to your land. I am sovereign over it all. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And even after all of that, Pharaoh, in a delusion of his own, sovereignty, refuses to cooperate with God, refuses to cooperate with what God wanted to do for the Egyptians. And so this showdown between God and Pharaoh comes to a head. Something big is about to happen. Exodus chapter 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with one more blow. After that, Pharaoh will let you leave this country In fact, he will be so eager to get rid of you that he will force you to leave. This is the final sign and wonder that God is going to bring down upon the Egyptians. And it completes this this cycle that demonstrates God's sovereignty over the Egyptians. So Moses and Aaron, they they go to the Israelites and they say, there's one more thing God's going to do. Here's what, here's what we need you to do in preparation for that. God's presence in his, is going to sweep through the land. 
And God's going to demonstrate that he is ultimately in charge of life and death. The firstborn of every family is going to die as God sweeps through the land. His presence sweeps through the land. What you need to do, Israelites, is to gather your family together. Get ready. Be packed. Because once this happens, we're going on a journey. We're going to the land that God is preparing and showing to us. And here's what Aaron and Moses delivered to the people. Verse 12. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt, the Lord says. I will strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. Watch this. When I see the blood... I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so Moses and Aaron, they go to the people and they say, have a, have a meal together. Choose one perfect spotless lamb. Slaughter the lamb together. Roast the meat over an open fire. And then take the blood of the lamb and put it on the right and the left door frame of your home and then finally over the doorpost. Do this so that when God's presence sweeps through the land, He will, His judgment on the land of Egypt will pass over you. And, it, and, it, and there, there's so much here in this, in this text that's difficult to make sense of. And, and we don't have, have time to fully unpack it this morning. But I would just simply say this about what the Lord does here in the, in the killing of the firstborn is that what is ultimately accomplished for Israel is, is taken away from Egypt. It's the ultimate sign of God's sovereignty over the nation of Egypt and over his people because Egypt enjoys this prosperity, but God is taking that away and he's delivering it to his people. And the Egyptian households, they awake to find that every family has been touched by death. Pharaoh and all of Egypt, they they wail and they mourn and they beg the Israelites to leave and they send them with silver and gold and it looks like a conquering nation. Having never lifted a sword or a spear or a shield, the Israelites conquer the most powerful nation on the face of the planet. They leave Egypt with the plunders of war. And what this story is teaching us on, on lots of different levels, but, but mainly for today, what, this teach, what the story is teaching us, friends, is that there is no obstacle God will not remove to accomplish His divine purposes. Like He has a plan. He's sovereign. He has a vision for who we can become and what we can do. He's the Lord of the church. And there's no obstacle that He won't remove to see those purposes fulfilled. We have a 101-year a history as a church. It still brings a smile to my face to, to even say that. To say that this community of faith is vibrant and alive and reaching its community and, and, and being a light to the, to, to the Bentonville and beyond. To say that now, 101 years after this church was born out of a tent revival just down the street. And in those 101 years... Some of you are gathered here this morning. You've, you've experienced a lot of those years. You have what's called institutional memory. 
It's a powerful thing for churches and for any organization. But you have memories. You've seen God move. You've seen God move obstacles. You've seen where the way was crooked and it appeared to be no way. And you, you've seen God break in and, and make it straight. You've seen God be faithful. And, and the good news for the church, both this local church and the big church, capital C, is that, that God is faithful and He can be trusted. And whatever obstacles are in our way, whatever challenges are in our way, God is going to take care of those and move us toward the intended future that He has for us. And so here's Pharaoh saying, I am in charge. And here's God ultimately saying, no, I am who I am is in charge. I will be who I will be is in charge. So what is the confession that we are invited to make today? We are invited to answer the question, hey, who's in charge? We are invited to say with one voice and one heart, He is. He is in charge. Are you facing ambiguity? Are you facing the unknown? You know, you hear people say a lot of times, I I don't like change, or I'm afraid of change, or I, I don't want things to change. I think what I've learned is that It's not that we are afraid of change as much as we are afraid of the unknown. Just the prospect of an unknown future. It creates all kinds of fear in us. And and that is ultimately what we are afraid of. But for 101 years now, this church has proclaimed that God is sovereign. that, That He is in charge. That He is in control And what God did for the Israelites in passing over when the the blood of the Lamb was applied to the door frames of their home, what God did there, He ultimately does in Christ. In the book of John, John the Baptist is preaching and Jesus comes on the scene. And the first message that John declares about Jesus and His ministry and who He's going to be and what He's going to do is He sees Jesus coming and He says to the crowd there, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is saying to those that he was preaching to, he's saying to us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the perfect spotless lamb. His blood was shed on our behalf. His blood was spilled so that we can be in relationship with God. And John is taking us back to this original exodus and saying that God is doing a new exodus. He's leading us into new experiences with him. And just as the blood was put on the door frames of those homes in three different places, do you realize the blood of Christ was shed in three different places from his body? It was shed from his hands, from his feet, and from his side. And Jesus became our once and for all Passover lamb because Jesus has been sacrificed. Because Jesus gave his life on the cross, we have the hope of a relationship with God. We have the hope of a life after this one. Our sins are forgiven. And yes, we go through seasons of ambiguity. We go through seasons where we don't know the future. But this is something you can take to the bank. This is something you can depend upon, you can trust in. Friends, in Christ, 
your sins have been forgiven. In Christ, you've been given a new life because Jesus has died, because Jesus has raised, because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father today, because of his Holy Spirit that's been given to us. We can take that to the bank and we can trust our unknown future because we serve and we love and we're in relationship with a known God who has said to us, this is how much I love you. This is how much I love you. I will become the one perfect, spotless, once and for all Passover lamb. And there when Jesus does that, the book of Mark tells us that there's a Roman centurion. And he looks up at Jesus and he sees these three wounds. And he sees the blood flowing. And when everybody else in the world saw a symbol of weakness and humiliation, the Roman centurion saw an example of God's sovereign love and power because he looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and he answered the question of who is in charge. He said, surely he is the Son of God. And friends, for every question that you have in your life, that is the answer. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who is present in your life. He is the answer for every unknown you will ever face. Because he's taking care of the ultimate question of your salvation when he spread himself on a cross and died for you. So we can trust in that. I've already mentioned that it's so weird sometimes to even just say that that this is a 101-year-old church. But I was thinking about God's faithfulness to us uh, in, in those years, of which I've been able to be a part of 12 of them. It's a nice biblical number. There's been lots of pastors. And our church historian wrote a little book, and some of you have it. It tells the story of some of those pastors and where they came from and and what they did and and what they accomplished. And it's really cool to read. But what all of those pastors have in common, there's a lot of things they have in common, but, but the thing that they have in common is that they had one job. Their one job was to preach that sermon that the centurion preached on the day Jesus died. Their one job was to preach that sermon every Sunday. To stand before a community of people and to say, surely he is the Son of God. Surely he is the one who has atoned for our sins. Surely he is the one who is sovereign over all of your life. This way, this way of the cross, is the way we are to live. And while there are so many things that are unknown about the future, this I know, that God is stirring in the heart of someone today. God is stirring in their heart a a new calling, a new vocation, a new place. And whoever that person is, through a process of discernment, you'll get a chance to meet him one day. But she or he will fill this pulpit. And they will stand before you and they will have one job. And it's the same job that I've had for the last 12. And that is to say, surely he is the Son of God. Surely 
He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. Surely he is the one that gives us hope for a future. There's a lot of things that change in life, but that message never will. That's who we are. That's what we proclaim to the world. And that's what we celebrate today.